Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24. If you don't own a Bible and you don't have one, you're welcome to take one of the Bibles from uh, the pew, from the seat in front of you, and that is yours for this service, but you're also welcome to take it home with you and benefit from that. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke for about a year and a half total, uh, with a few stops and starts here and there. But a few people have asked me if I intentionally planned to preach this passage on this Sunday, and I would say yes and no. Uh, it was you know, around Christmas time or probably around Thanksgiving time or so when I was mapping out the sermon schedule for January through the end of Luke, whatever that was going to look like. It was possible I could have been done by, with Luke by now. It was also possible I could have gone many more months if I really wanted to, just so you know, I'm being nice to you by condensing things. But... It was also possible I would have preached this passage last Sunday. It was kind of like, mm, that just doesn't seem quite right. So why don't we just kind of reshift things a little bit? So uh, hence we have landed on the resurrection passage on Resurrection Sunday. So uh, that's how it worked out in the Lord's providence, and we are grateful for that. But if this is your first time hearing our study of the Gospel of Luke, this should be on page 831 or right around there. I didn't check this morning, but off of last week's passage, I think it's page 831 of that Bible near you. And uh, if this is your first time hearing this study, you came on a great week. This is a passage that pulls together many of the threads of the Gospel of Luke uh, in really beautiful ways. And so I encourage you to follow along silently as I read Luke 24, verses 1 through 12 today. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose And ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Perhaps you've heard in recent weeks about a man named Seamus Gray, a 21-year-old Navy service member. He's been missing since March 18th, when he was last seen on some surveillance camera at a bar in Waukegan. And they also caught him on some surveillance camera near Lake Michigan. So a lot of the efforts of search and rescue, uh, divers and officers have been looking in that general area near Lake Michigan and in the lake. But to this point, they have not found him nearly about three weeks ago, over the last three weeks. His mom came up from Florida a few weeks ago to help look, giving all her energy and emotional zeal, as you would expect, in helping to, to search for this young man, but to this point they have not found his body. This is a very sad story to follow. Perhaps they will find him, and somehow, perhaps, he's still fine. seems unlikelier as each day goes by. But if they do find him dead, there's no reason to think that he's going to come back to life. And that was surely what 
the woman who went to the tomb on that resurrection Sunday we're expecting to find was a dead body that was not going to come back to life. Just like for all of us who have ever attended a funeral, you did not expect that person to come back out of that casket. When that casket was lowered in the grave, you did not expect that hole to ever be opened again. And so these women went to the tomb that morning expecting to find a dead, buried body. And they went as a means of trying to honor him, as we'll see in our passage. But what our passage tells us today, the simple truth of this passage is glorious, and it is that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And again, if this is your first time to hear Luke, if this is your first time to experience what Christianity is all all about, you came on a great day. Luke has been building toward this. You could cut out a lot of other chapters in Luke. You'd miss some things. You'd miss some of Jesus' teaching. You'd miss some of Jesus' miracles. Let's just say you could cut chapter 15 out. Let's say you could cut chapter 10 out. Those are actually beautiful stories in those passages. But we'd still have a coherent story about Jesus. But if you leave this chapter out of your Bible and the other corroborating chapters in the Gospel accounts, you don't have Christianity. And you might as well go home, which is what we said when we affirmed together the truths from 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it is pointless to believe in Him. It is pointless to follow Him and to give your life and to obey Him. But if he really did rise from the dead, as this passage tells us, it's not pointless. It's your life to follow him, to love him, to obey him, and to honor him. Jesus truly rose from the dead, so believe and obey him. And it seems to me that what Luke is doing in this passage is giving us three reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I will go ahead and tell you that next week he'll give us some more reasons to believe that. But here he gives us three. And the first is in verses 1 through the first half of verse 4, where he says, Believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the woman did not find him. In other words, the tomb was empty. People went looking to find a body. That's why they took spices with them. Not to smell nice themselves. To go make a dead body smell nice. So the smell of decomposition would not kick in so fast. Would not affect them so badly. We notice that these women knew where he had been buried because you can just look back probably on the same page of your Bible or perhaps on the previous page. In verse 55, the woman who had come with him, with Jesus, from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They knew where that tomb was. They knew where in the tomb his body was. They knew what it looked like, wrapped up in linen cloths, as we read in verses previous to that last week. And then they, those women, returned and prepared spices and ointments. Skip ahead to verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. They went to the tomb. That they there, and I tried to read it with an emphasis as we read it aloud, that they is talking about those same women who saw where the tomb was and saw where in the tomb Jesus laid and how he was in the tomb. And they went out of loyalty. They went as soon as they could see. That's part of how we see the loyalty of these women. It was still very dark. The other Gospel writers tell us that at the break of dawn, while it was still dark, here Luke just refers to it as at early dawn. They went to keep the body from smelling like it was decaying. It was an act of reverence and love and appreciation and worship. And they went despite the fact that they may be mocked or even in danger from the guards that other Gospel writers tell us were stationed at the tomb. But they didn't find what they were looking for. 
You notice that in verse, 20, in verse 2. What they did find was a stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went into that tomb and they did not find the body. Luke doesn't tell us how the stone was rolled away. Other Gospel writers tell us it was the angels who rolled it away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that other people could look in and see that he wasn't there. Mark tells us that these ladies were discussing on the way to the tomb how they would move the stone. It was heavy. It wasn't going to budge. It would have been difficult to get it to move. So they are having this conversation on the way to the tomb before they even got there. Have you ever gone looking for something and been sure you put it somewhere and you just can't find it? Like parking your car in a huge parking garage and you're certain you've parked it on you know, level 7, but you've looked all the way around level 7 and you realize that there's a little ramp. That, that's still called level 7 over there. Maybe you've left your water bottle on a park and somebody else who has the same kind of water bottle, like this, <laughs> picked it up and took it with them and they, uh, accidentally. But even something like that is disconcerting to us. Like, I know I left it on this park bench. How come my water bottle's gone? So imagine these ladies, maybe when they, when they saw the tomb, they thought, why is that stone? Maybe we're at the wrong tomb. No, they knew exactly where they were, exactly which tomb to be at. But imagine the panic that these women felt. They were showing their loyalty to Jesus. We show our loyalty by worshiping the risen Christ on the first day of the week, which is when they went on the first day of the week. That was Sunday. And it wasn't long after the resurrection that Jesus' followers stopped worshiping God on the Sabbath and started worshiping God on the first day of the week. Paul brings this up in numerous letters, and also in the, uh, early in Revelation. It's called the Lord's Day. And so we, every single week, worship here. Whether it's raining or snowing, or windy, or beautiful like it is today, we join together to worship and to celebrate the resurrection. And this church has done that almost every Sunday since 1961. But before that, other Christians have done it every Sunday all around the world since the news of the resurrection spread to those places. And so show your loyalty by week after week coming to worship the risen Christ here or at other gospel-preaching churches. Luke tells us that in verse Four, early in verse 4, that these women were perplexed. Perhaps that means they were standing there scratching their heads. Perhaps that means they stood there with their mouths hanging open, looking, each, looking at each other in the eye, not even needing to say anything. Perhaps they were wringing their hands. But even the fact that these women went to the tomb first and found it empty is a reason to believe this account. Practically, every source I looked at this week made mention of the fact that woman in the first century, in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered next to worthless. You would not believe a woman for telling you this. So the Gospel writers wouldn't have made this story up this way in that culture if it were not true. A fabrication of a story like this would have had men making the discovery to make it seem more plausible in the first century. And so maybe you're wondering, how did we get from that world where a woman's testimony was basically worthless to a world like we have now? And the answer to that is because of the beauty of Christianity. It is the message of the Gospel that has shown the dignity and value and honor of women, even though in, our own, in their own day it was a countercultural message. And things like this are still happening today. Perhaps maybe you've watched a little bit of the Masters this week, which mostly has been watching Rainfall. But if you have watched it, perhaps you've heard a little bit about the controversy uh, between the PGA and the Live Golf 
group, I don't even know what word to, to, to call it, Live Golf, let's just call it that. And if you know nothing about this, it's fine, but basically the controversy is Live Golf is funded by Saudi Arabians. And in Saudi Arabia, there's tremendous devaluation, at least there historically has been, of women's rights. And so people have argued, I'm not going to play for that group, even though I would make millions more dollars just for showing up, no matter how badly I played for three days. They have a shorter tournament than the PGA does. Again, I didn't need to tell you that. I'm sorry. Maybe you don't care about golf. That's fine. All I'm saying is, there are a few differences between the PGA and Live, but those who, are, who have stayed in the PGA, some of them have said, I'm not going over to that other one, because of the way that they devalue human rights. So there's something about how Christianity has paved the way for the way that we value women and their dignity and their beauty in our society today. So in verses 1 through the beginning of verse 4, believe in the resurrection because the woman found the tomb empty. Second, in verses 4b, or the second half of verse 4, through verse 8, believe in the resurrection because of the words of Jesus. This is in the second half of verse 4 to verse 8. Believe the resurrection because of the words of Jesus. And so what we have here is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy on three different occasions in Luke alone. Leaving aside the other gospel accounts, which you know, corroborate but also at, at times add other details. Just in Luke we have three different predictions of Jesus' suffering. And in several of those, Jesus predicted his own resurrection as well. And so here in verse Four, two men stood by these women who are standing at the tomb, perhaps even in the tomb at this moment. And these two men are standing there in dazzling apparel. Other gospel writers are even clearer that these were angels. Later on in chapter 24, verse 23, uh, it was communicated to the other disciples that these were angels indeed. But it's apparent even by the fact that they were in dazzling apparel. These weren't normal men in normal clothes, and the woman knew that immediately, which is why they fell on their faces. The only other place that uh, angels are mentioned in Luke, besides one in Jesus' Garden of the Gethsemane experience, the only, only other place is in chapters 1 and 2. What's happening in chapters 1 and 2? The angels are proclaiming that Jesus and John the Baptist were about to be born, and then they were proclaiming that Jesus had just been born. Angels had the job of communicating the truth of God to the people of God. But the identity of these two men is not as important as what the angels said. That's always the case. They speak on behalf of God, but here they're just reminding the woman of what Jesus had said. And these women, as you would expect, are frightened. You would do the same thing they would do. You'd probably fall on your face. You'd probably cover your face. You would be frightened. Now, it's possible that this frightened here in verse 5 is referring to their fear of God and just recognizing that this is a supernatural situation. Something out of the ordinary is happening here. Perhaps it was just their instinct that they fell down in fear, as again, it likely would be our own. But the angels wanted the woman to know immediately that the body of Jesus wasn't stolen. He wasn't, uh, he is not here. They're telling the woman, you don't look for a living person in a cemetery. You don't say, hmm, this person's missing. Let me go start digging up tombs and seeing if he's there. No, you look for living people in living places. And so they, they tell the woman the first fact, which was obvious, that Jesus wasn't there. And they tell him the less obvious fact. Okay, So the, the woman may be thinking, well, clearly he's not here. So where is he? 
And they immediately answer that question, He has risen. Again, this would have blown their minds. Just like it would blow our minds if Abraham Lincoln walked in here right now. We don't expect that to happen. We know he's dead and has been for a while. You don't expect a dead person to walk into a room. And so, these women were not expecting Jesus to be alive. They just knew he wasn't there. But the angels tell them this less obvious fact that he has risen. But the angels also tell them, you should have expected this. You shouldn't have come bringing spices for a dead person. Because Jesus told you multiple times in chapter 9 and also in chapter 18 that he would die. First of all, he would be handed over to sinful men. That's the way that Jesus put it. That he would suffer, he would be crucified, and then he would rise again on the third day. Jesus said this over and over again. He also says in, in verse 7 here, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And I would just ask you the question, who did that delivering? Well, we can answer that at least three different ways. First of all, we know that Pilate delivered, actually let's back up, that Judas Iscariot delivered Jesus over. We also know that Pilate delivered Jesus over to the guards who went and crucified him. But on a far bigger sense, the book of Acts also tells us that God Himself delivered Jesus over. This was a divine work. This was part of the plan of God, the sovereign plan of God. And I want to encourage you, even as I prayed a few minutes ago, to meditate deeply on the beautiful sovereignty of God. And I received a wonderfully encouraging note from one of our homebound members this week who wrote that, though attacked by Satan suddenly and by many evil intended people, I actually was saved in this situation by God's sovereign grace. And she mentioned a sermon that she listened to that encouraged her in this direction about the Lord's sovereignty. She mentioned a letter that I sent her about this very topic. And she said, I can trust in God's all-knowing wisdom and love even in the face of vilest evil. And no, it doesn't demean Him or His holiness. He is altogether other, the most high and powerful. That was a beautiful note to receive from one of our homebound members to realize that it was the Word of God, the truth of God, stabilizing her soul. The sovereignty of God is not meant to confuse you or baffle you or burden you. It is meant to encourage you, to strengthen you, to help you rejoice in the truth. So who delivered Jesus over? Yes, Judas. Yes, Pilate. But yes, God the Father as well. And so these women, the the angel says, remember how he told you. And then in verse 8, and they remembered his words. They meditated on what Jesus said. And for the first time, it all made sense. It was perhaps still too good to be true, right? You hear this wonderful message that someone's coming from out of town to visit you. You'd expect it was never going to happen. Too good to be true. They hadn't seen Jesus yet, and so perhaps it still seemed like almost impossible to get their minds around, but they remembered what he had said, and with the help of angelic messengers, it clicked. And so they listened to the words rather than to their emotions, which we, as God's people, need to do time and again. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, writes about why we should listen to the words of God rather than to our own feelings. And even before I say that, there was a pastor in uh, the UK named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of his most famous quotes was, we spend too much time listening to ourselves and too little time talking to ourselves. 
It's kind of weird to talk to yourself unless what you're talking to yourself about is the Word of God. Unless what you're doing is constantly filling your mind with God's truth. And so what Dale Ralph Davis says about this is that the reason I know He lives is not because of my subjective feelings, but because of the Word of Jesus. The basis for the resurrection is the Word of your Savior, not the depth of your emotion. Your life is anchored by the Word of Jesus, not by the intensity of your feelings. This principle extends beyond the resurrection to one's whole approach to the Christian life. You must make a practice of leaning on the Lord's Word, not on your emotional barometer. There are days when I don't have inner peace, he writes, and times when my emotional stability may be shot. But Jesus' Word has not changed. Remember how He spoke to you, the angel said. And so related to this, Christian, I want to urge you to do what the angels said to do here, and that is to remember the words of Jesus. And to do this on your own. Psalm 1 tells us about the person who is like a tree planted by streams of water. What does that mean that he's like a tree planted by water? It means he bears fruit. He lives a fruitful life. It means he's not withering up and drying out. He's well nourished. And why is that the case? Because in Psalm 1-2, he meditates on the Word of God day and night. So maybe you can do that by writing verses to put on your fridge or on your mirror or in your car. Maybe you can laminate a sheet of verses that you want to try to memorize while you sit at stoplights. And you might say, I would never do that. It's too distracting. Raise your hand if you have never picked up your phone while sitting at a stoplight. Okay. So is it really any different to pick up a little 3x5 card? How dare all of you do that, by the way. It's against the law. Anyway, um, so you have a little 3x5 card... Memorize what's on that instead of reading the text message. Maybe you have a, a full-size sheet of, of Scripture that you can keep next to, your, next to the seat of your car and just pull it out when you're sitting in traffic on a highway. But that's talking about what you do individually to listen to the Word of God. What about when we're all together hearing the Word of God? It's at least as important, if not more important, on Sundays to hear the Word of God together. Every time we miss a worship service, we miss the opportunity to let Scripture reframe our thoughts and reform our hearts. You hear about the Reformation? We need a weekly reformation of our thoughts, of our hearts, of our intentions and our belief systems. And so, when we stop hearing the Word of God consistently, we start developing wrong attitudes about sins. Wrong attitudes about ourselves and our own ability to survive and thrive in the Christian life. And we at least run the risk of developing wrong beliefs. At least run the risk. That's a bare minimum. Of developing wrong beliefs and even strange doctrines that are foreign to Scripture. All by simply saying, "Mm, this bed feels so good today. Or, oh, that green golf course looks so nice. Or, oh, that blue lake water looks really nice for my fishing expedition today. And I don't say this for my own benefit as a preacher. I say this for your own benefit, that you need to be where the Word of God is being preached, whether it's here or any other faithful gospel-preaching church, where the gospel you hear there is the same gospel you hear here, and it's the same gospel you read in the Word of God over and over again. Let the Word of God reshape your heart. Remember the words of Jesus. That's what the angels are telling us, and so I simply wanted to urge us in that way as well. These women believe that Jesus truly rose again, Because Jesus himself had told them this would happen. 
Luke was telling his readers that Jesus had called his shot. It happened exactly as he said it would, so you can believe it. And third, in verses 9 through 12, believe in the resurrection. Believe that Jesus truly came out of the grave because the disbelieving disciples later believed. The disbelieving disciples later believed. That's what we see in verses 9 through 12, at least the fact that they were disbelieving disciples and the fact that Peter, one of those disbelieving disciples, marveled. And then you fast forward a couple pages into Acts and you see that Peter preached over and over again and wrote over and over again about the resurrection. So disbelieving disciples later believed. You see in verse 9, returning from the tomb, they told all these things, these women told all these things, the conversation with the angel, the empty tomb, and on and on, told all these things to the eleven, so that's the twelve disciples minus Judas Iscariot, and to all the rest. That would be all the other disciples who perhaps had gone into hiding together. People we don't even know their names of. We'll learn a few of their names, at least one of their names, in our passage next week. But there were many other followers of Jesus who had run away from the cross in shame and in agony just days before this. And now they're hearing the truth from people that they knew. And the reason Luke gives us specific names here was because very likely it's possible that people like Theophilus, knew some of these people, or at least knew people who knew these people. In other words, it's kind of like, well, my neighbor said such and such, and I can say it on good grounds because they got it straight from the source. And so what he's doing is giving them specific names, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them. So who knows how big of this entourage this was, who told them these things to the apostles. It's another name for these early disciples. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. It seemed like a big joke. They're playing a practical joke. It's April Fool's Day all of a sudden, it seems. And they did not believe them. But Peter, notice his response. He rose and ran to the tomb. And there's two things we need to notice here about how we know that he got the the gist, got the gist of what happened, the fact that Jesus truly rose from the dead and why we should believe that. One is he didn't run to the wrong tomb. Okay, We know that because he saw the linen cloths in there. So you know it's not the wrong place. He knew exactly where Jesus was buried. We also know that Jesus wasn't stolen. If someone had run in and somehow had distracted the guards long enough or paid them high enough or whatever else to get the body out, they wouldn't have unwrapped it. They would have just taken the body and hid it somewhere else. So perhaps you've, you've... tried to figure out some other explanation for the resurrection. Like, you agree with even secular historians that Jesus truly died, that his body was buried somewhere. Okay, so people who didn't even believe in Jesus knew where that was, and they have to come up with other explanations, which just simply proves the point that he truly did die and he truly was buried. So what other explanation is there? And I would simply jump ahead a page in my notes here and lose my train of thought, and say, I believe in Christianity. I believe the Bible as a whole because I don't know of any other good explanation for where Jesus was that day, except for the fact that he truly came out of the grave alive. This is why we preach the gospel. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, if you forget this, if you don't believe this, forget Christianity. It's wasting your time. 
There are other belief systems. There are other worldviews. Pick one of those, any of them, if Jesus did not rise from the grave. Because Christianity is worthless, you deserve to be pitied if you believe in Jesus, if he did not come out of that grave. But one of the ways we know that the disbelieving disciples became convinced of the resurrection was because this fact of the resurrection was the main content of their preaching in the book of Acts, which again is like the sequel to the book of Luke. I want to give you some examples of this just from the book of Acts. In Acts 3.15, Peter's preaching. He says, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In other words, we saw him ourselves. Verse four, let it be known, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the t- name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The man who had just been healed in the temple. Acts 13.30, God raised him from the dead. Acts 13.34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. Acts 17.31, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And I love this one, Acts 26.8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So the apostles made this the gist of their preaching. The content of their preaching was Jesus is truly alive. They also made it the content of their letters. Read the letters of Peter, of Paul, of John. Jude and James don't specifically mention the resurrection, but everything they say is based off of it, is built on that truth and the implications of it. Living the Christian life is possible because of the resurrection. That's what the apostles told you. All the truth that they lay out in their writings, in the book of Hebrews, in the book of James, in the book of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude, and Revelation, all of the books that come after the Gospels and Acts are just telling you, or really just after the Gospels, are telling you, this is true, here's why you can believe it, here's what it looks like to believe it. So let me tell you some of what it looks like to believe it. It means that you have power to fight sin, any sin. It means that you have forgiveness from every sin. Every sin! You have forgiveness because Jesus came out of the tomb. It means you have hope of eternal life, that the person that you loved who died you will see again because of their faith in Christ and your faith in Christ. It means you can expect Jesus to return. It means you have motivation to share the gospel with those who are yet lost in their sin. The resurrection encourages us to give our lives to making disciples, young and old, to help them grow in their love for God and in their biblical thinking in this life. The resurrection of Jesus was a life-altering event for his followers, so they never stopped talking about it. And so then other people learned the gospel, and they never stopped talking about it. And now we've learned the gospel, and so we don't stop talking about it. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe one of the reasons you struggle to believe that the message of Christianity is true is because people who call themselves Christians have done some really terrible things and continue to do some really terrible things. These are problematic. The failures of Christians are not something to just sweep under the rug and say, "Eh, it's not a big deal. Jesus wins. Yes, he does, but it's still a big deal that people sin and hurt other people in terrible ways. But the sins and failures of people who call themselves Christians don't outweigh the truth of the resurrection. You still have to account in some way for where Jesus was on that day. 
when his followers ran to the tomb and out of breath stooped over, looked in, and saw it empty. We believe in Christ because of the resurrection. If you want to kind of pursue this a little bit further, this book, Why Trust the Bible, which we've had out over and over again on the book table, I don't know that it's there now, but I can give you this copy if you'd like it. Uh, Greg Gilbert works through this idea. This is essentially the clinching argument. Why trust the Bible? Because Jesus came out of the grave. This is the reason we share the gospel and why we should share the gospel in such a way that we put it on people's conscience. It's like, "Mm, I'm really not interested in hearing this. What you can say is, so what you're saying is you don't believe Jesus is alive? Make them respond to that question. And if they say, no, I truly don't. If they're willing to keep the conversation going, okay, can you kind of give me an explanation for what happened to him? But if they do say, oh, well, when you put it that way, yeah, I guess, I guess I believe he truly is alive. Okay, so are you willing to survey these two views, these two ways to live, the way to follow God or the way to follow self? And are you willing then to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Christian, the resurrection was God's confirmation that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus said, it is finished. It means that all the law was fulfilled, that all of Jesus' work was perfectly done. The resurrection proves that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He is God. And the resurrection is God's assurance to us Christians that we have been forgiven. Can you believe it? You are truly forgiven when your faith is in the risen Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we bless you today for this truth, for the risen Lamb who was slain so that we can have forgiveness of sins and was resurrected so that we too can have this foretaste of deliverance, so that we can have unwavering hope, Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when He comes. Give us grace to cling to that truth and to preach it and love it all of our days. Amen.